For those who might not be old enough to remember, believe me when I tell you that the summer of 1989 was one of the most incredible, blockbuster-filled movie summers in history. It was like a kind of cinematic bookend to the much-exalted summer of 1982. In the space of just a few months, we saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, Karate Kid 3, Star Trek 5, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Friday the 13th Part 8, License to Kill, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Abyss, Dead Poet Society, Do the Right Thing, and of course, Batman. But hidden in and among all those tentpoles, sequels, and blockbusters was a little movie that initially opened in only 41 theaters, and which would go on to not only be one of the most successful movies of the year, but would reinvent the genre of romantic comedy. This is When Harry Met Sally. Men and women can't be friends, because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. Greg? No, I don't like to eat between meals. I'll roll down the window. A faceless guy rips off your clothes, and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I varied it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Are you comfortable? Sure. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went night. over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing, and then... To make and a long story short, we, we did it. They did it. The challenge. <laughs> I'm difficult. I'm too structured. I'm completely closed off. But in a good way. And I'm gonna be 40! <laughs> when? <laughs> Someday. In eight years. Hello and welcome to the first episode in our brand new series, Get Me Another When Harry Met Sally. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Uh, I'm sorry, but podcast co-hosts can never be friends, Chris. <laughs> well, I hope it's not the sex that gets in the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. Yes. <laughs> If you have listened to our show before, you'll know that we explore the movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. This week and in the weeks to come, we'll be examining the wave of romantic comedies that came after the watershed that was 1989's When Harry Met Sally. When Harry Met Sally was a collaboration of writer Nora Ephron and director Rob Reiner. Ephron started her career as a journalist in the late 60s and 70s, and in the early 80s, she co-wrote the Oscar-nominated script for Silkwood. She also wrote the film adaptation of her novel, Heartburn, both films being directed by Mike Nichols. 
Rob Reiner was in the middle of an incredible directorial run in the 80s and early 90s. After beginning his career as an actor and starring for five seasons as Archie Bunker's son-in-law, Mike Stivick, a.k.a. Meathead, on All in the Family, Reiner turned to directing, beginning with the 1984 mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. He followed that with movies such as The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, Misery, A Few Good Men, and the movie we're talking about today, When Harry Met Sally. The genesis of this movie goes back to a meeting that Reiner and Efron had at the Russian Tea Room, where Reiner pitched an idea that Efron, by her own admission, did not really like. But it led them to discuss the lives of single men, Reiner having recently been divorced. The conversation continued in subsequent meetings, and eventually Reiner pitched the idea of a movie about two people who become friends after the first significant relationship in their lives comes apart. And they don't have sex because they know it will ruin the relationship. And what happens is eventually they have sex and it ruins the relationship. And that's kind of the key question at the heart of this movie. Can men and women ever just be friends? You know, I got to say from the off, this is an incredibly special movie. This movie is is just, you know, I, even if you're not a romantic comedy person, this is just an incredible movie. Absolutely. I will jump the gun and say, for me, this is another perfect movie i i am tend to agree i think it's it, i would it is, not change a thing i yeah. can't imagine it being one frame different than it is i've only said that in a in a year plus now i've only said this about one other movie that we've covered star crash wait no no <laughs> that's where the no. fighting eagle <laughs> yes <laughs> halloween and i guess you couldn't have more diametrically opposed perfect films uh but they both are and when harry met sally i hadn't watched it in a number of years and this is a movie that makes me fall in love with it every Absolutely. single time. Every Absolutely. Single time. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's an incredibly special movie. And one of the things that I think makes it so special, and one of the reasons why it's a watershed and why it is kicking off this series, is it's the collaboration of Efron and Reiner and the balance that they bring to the film. Yeah, we'll talk about how this movie is different from earlier romantic comedies, but one of the main reasons is the balance between the male and female perspectives and the way they are given equal weight, and it is extraordinary. Absolutely. Both character names are in the title for a reason. Yeah. And I believe I read somewhere that that uh, Nora Ephron maybe wasn't super crazy about this as the title. It's great. For me, it really encapsulates the movie and what this is about. Yeah. It's about that moment that changes your life forever, even sometimes when you don't know it when it happens, right? You only know in hindsight. Yes. Apparently, they did struggle with the title. They wanted originally, they were called like Boy Meets Girl. Um, there were a couple different, they had, apparently, Rob Reiner had, they they were shooting it and they didn't have the title. So Rob Reiner had a had a thing, like a contest on set for anybody who could name the movie. They'd get like $1,000 or something like that. Uh, although Reiner eventually himself came up with the title when Harry met Sally. And uh, that's nepotism. That's nepotism. <laughs> he gave himself the grand. He's a nepo baby. <laughs> 
also it, it it kicked off along with the second movie we'll talk about today, which we'll get into obviously later. Uh, it kicked off a wave of romantic comedies in the '90s. The '80s were not a great decade for romantic comedies. There certainly were some, particularly those revolving around teenagers. But that's a kind of different bag. And at some point down the road, we are going to do a series examining '80s teen films. One thing I noticed about looking at romantic comedies, adult-oriented romantic comedies in the 80s, is oftentimes they were workplace-based. You have movies like Working Girl, The Secret of My Success, Broadcast News, even Bull Durham, where the workplace is a minor league baseball team, is essentially workplace-based. And Young Doctors in Love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which was the director of, which was Gary Marshall's first feature yes. film. Yeah. Yes. So, it, and this kind of puts that away. There's no other plot. There's no big deal to close. There's no, there's no other goal to achieve other than their, the relationship of Harry and Sally. There's no other story. They are the story. And that is, that is groundbreaking. Yeah. And it's, it's the thing that I love the most about it is and we're going to see this change with the next film. Yes. Where this has absolutely no high concept other than they met and they didn't they didn't have a relationship right away if yeah. you consider that a high concept. When you look at this, I think the movie really is just a series of conversations between Harry and Sally as they get to know each other and have a deeper understanding of each other over many many years. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons that I love it so much is, uh, I, full disclosure, uh, I am at heart a romantic. I wrote bad <laughs> poetry in high school. I did all sorts of things. Uh, I, you know, I was reading uh, Baudelaire, all that stuff, right? So I am, I am a prime candidate for this movie. And what I love is that it replicates, if you are in that mode, you know, whether you're younger or o- older now. Mm-hmm. There is a real romance, uh, even in non-romantic relationships, to discovering a new person. And it's just like getting to know them. And there's this whole, it's like a whole undiscovered country. And when you start to be a little bit simpatico, there's a real excitement in That's that. true. Even when when Rob met Chris or when Chris <laughs> met Rob, uh, and it was a workplace comedy. That's but, true. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's an excitement in finding, you know, a, a like-minded individual, you know, who's not 100% like-minded and sometimes, as in the case of Harry and Sally, very not like-minded. And yet somehow there is a chemistry there and just, I don't know, that that to me is one of the best things in life. Well, you know, full disclosure for me is is that I, I my situation is in that I, I met the, the, the woman who, who I would marry a number of years before we met. We got together, we kind of went apart, we kind of came back together. And then there was sort of that, that light bulb moment. Um, where it was like, oh no, this is the person I'm going to be with. And, you know, from there, it all happened relatively quickly. And we've been married for ever since. So, it, you know, in that sense, it was like, you know, the, the stories that you hear told in, in the, in the, in the little, the interview segments that oh, sort yeah. of punctuate, you know, it's like, oh, well, I, I kind of, you know, a lot of them feel like, oh, we met and then we kind of went apart and then we came back together. And I'm like, well, that, that very much sort of, you know, spoke to me and my own personal experience. And, and, it's, and, and I'm sure you were going to get to it, but all, all of the ones in the movie, while it is actors portraying them, yes. the stories are real. 
Yes, they are the 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 interview segments that they use, kind of it, you know, to sort of punctuate the film. The real stories told by actors. They are not the actual. It's not documentary footage. And apparently, well, first of all, I should say that those actors are the most convincing actors on <laughs> earth. Yes. Like, if you didn't know that they were actors, you would absolutely think they are the real people. Uh, apparently, the reason they didn't use the real people. Uh, they wanted to, and they actually did some tests, but apparently uh, real people and apparently older real people, in fact, don't tell stories very concisely. Oh, so uh, yeah. apparently that became a problem and they're like, no, no, no we got to find a way to do this where it doesn't stop the movie dead. And and they did. And it's uh, it's fantastic. The film stars Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan as the title characters, as well as Carrie Fisher and Bruna Kirby as their friends Marie and Jess. And all four of them are perfect. They are absolutely yes. perfect in their roles. Yes. I don't know if you caught when you were watching the credits. Did you know that Barry Sonnenfeld was the DP Did on the this? The DP on it, yeah. For sure. This must have been one of his last DP jobs before he moved on to directing with the Avengers. Yeah. I think mean, maybe one or two more after this. But Yeah, uh, it would have been very soon after. And and I did want to call out the character names because sometimes uh, movies are less subtle than you think and it doesn't matter mm-hmm. uh, because it's perfect. Harry Burns yep. and Sally Albright. Albright. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Which they are... You know, very They're much perfectly named. named. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And Chris, before the movie even starts, you get the opening credits over black. But what I love about it, and I, as you know, we, uh, this whole hobby is overreading into things and I love it. <laughs> On the score, as you're just seeing the credits go, is a, a jazz piano riff on It Had to Be You. Of course. And look, jazz, uh, you know, there are often people, you know, quoting songs or, uh, you know, when you're doing your version, you know, Coltrane's My Favorite Things, rather different than The Sound of Music, for instance. But what I love is, whether intended or not, the opening music of this is literally saying, here's an old romantic standard and we're riffing on it in a new way. Yeah. And that is exactly what this movie is. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the music is 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 classic romantic standard. They you know, they kind of moved away from at the time, you know, pop songs would be the the way to go, but they kind of went with uh, old romantic standards. Harry Connick Jr was was uh, made kind of this was the the movie that elevated his career as it was just getting started. You know, they 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 work Tremendously effective. The movie opens in 1977 with Harry and Sally sharing a ride from Chicago to New York City after graduating from college. And during the drive, the two talk about men and women and relationships. Harry makes a pass at Sally, which she rejects. And once they reach New York, they go their separate ways. And even just in this first sequence of the film, there's so much great stuff. Like the bit with the grape and Harry, yes. you know, like he's spitting it out the window, but he doesn't realize the window's still up. And and talking about reading the last page of a book before he reads it, uh, which we actually see him do later. You know, the bit where they walk in the diner and Sally says, I've had plenty of good sex, just as everyone gets quiet as something we'll see again in later movies. Like that's, all of this is so good. And of course- Sally placing an order off the menu in the diner that they stop in to eat. Yes. What can I get you? Olive number three. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. 
But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh-huh. Apparently, that's how Nora Ephron would order in, yes. in, in restaurants. And there's just so many little character details that make this movie so rich. And a lot of them came from Reiner and Ephron. And it's, uh, God, it, it's just, even just the first sequence of this movie is incredible. I mean, I was watching it. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're 15 minutes in and it's already a classic. Yeah. And you get some wonderful staging uh, when you open at the University of Chicago when mm-hmm. uh, Harry is kissing his girlfriend at the time, uh, Amanda, and they're kissing in this very long shot as you're, the camera's traveling around them. And then Sally's driving up in the background <laughs> yeah. and impatiently looking at them until she eventually honks yep. to interrupt, which is just a great character introduction and, and kind of what is literally going to be happening through much of the movie. And then even all the way into that diner sequence, the, yeah. the first of many diner sequences, where uh, when Sally, as you said, uh, said she'd had plenty of great sex, and <laughs> Harry inquired, when was the last great sex? And she said, uh, Sheldon. Sheldon. And he, yeah, he does not believe. No, it's not Sheldon. Give it to me, Sheldon. Give it to me, Sheldon. <laughs> Sheldon the Wonderschlong. <laughs> yes. Just so many great bits and and very dependent upon the chemistry of the two actors because Harry's a little rough around the edges. And if you didn't have someone with Crystal's charm, it could go overboard in that direction. Yeah. Just as Sally's kind of her, her type A personality, let's say, could could go too far, but not with Meg Ryan. And and what's great about it is both of them are, they're kind of annoying, but not so much so that you don't want to spend time with them. Like Harry is yeah. sort of that perfect, oh, he just got out of college and he's taken a philosophy course and he knows everything about everything. And he's just, you know, he's kind of, and she's, and she's uh, you know, again, type A, I think is the way I, I, would, I would put it. And it, it's, it, it's all, it's just so detailed and 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 smart and interesting and then the movie does what romantic comedies don't do is they reach their destination and they go their separate ways presumably you know as far as they're concerned never to meet again yeah and because this then gets into the time jumps that this movie has and i won't i won't get ahead of ourselves as far as what's going to happen and what the different time jumps are but as a device, time jumps in movies are often used in in stories that are far, far different from this. Yeah. And they're used, uh, you know, to enhance mystery or so you don't know what's been happening. They're usually trying to play some sort of magic trick on the audience. And that is not what no. this is for. And yet it serves a real, real purpose to get kind of the depth and breadth of the friendship over the totality of time before they get together. Totally. Uh, we also do get to see them mature and not mature together, yeah. uh, which is it really provides, I think, just a much more solid basis for the relationship. And uh, and you just get to cut out all of the uninteresting parts like in a 
in a big, big way. Right, right. And, and you know, the as you say, the movie jumps ahead five years later and Harry and Sally meet again in an airport and they have another conversation on the on the flight. And by this point, both of them are in relationships. Harry is soon to be married. Uh, Sally is in a relationship, a long-term relationship um, that we see a little bit of. And I love how this movie subtly shifts their characterizations, not wholesale, yes. but a little bit. Because you know what? You're not the same person five years later that you were five years earlier. So, And, and you get a little bit just – they're a little different, but they're not fundamentally different. And it does that so incredibly well. They also look a little different because their look changes yes. just a little bit. Uh, in particular, Sally's hair, where you know she in the seventies, she's got a kind of Farrah Fawcett, Charlie's Angels thing going on. Then it's the early eighties hair, and then we get one more time jump after the the nineteen eighty two scene where we go to nineteen eighty seven, and now it's it's uh, Meg Ryan with the most tremendous late eighties hair. <laughs> she looks fantastic. I know you're a fan. She looks fantastic fan, in this movie. Yeah. And again, you get these little details. And we're introduced then in 1987 to Harry and Sally's friends, Jess and Marie, who are the other two really significant characters in the movie. I mean, it's really a four-character piece. I mean, there's a there's a couple other people, but it's yes. it's really just the four of them. You know, we meet Marie at a lunch where we learn she's involved with a married man who will never leave his wife, although she is the only one who's not accepted this. Uh, we Jess is introduced with Harry at the football game, at which point I actually said out loud, "Ah, the wave." Yes. <laughs> For your younger folks. If you went to a football game in the late 80s, early 90s, everybody stood up and there was this wave that around the stadium. I think it died. That that trend died, thank God. But, you know, you see them having this conversation every once in a while. They get up, they do the wave, they sit back down. Ah, uh, the wave. Yeah. And, and that, that little scene at the football game showcases, I think, Crystal's unique comic timing for this, where – his comic timing, there is a little bit of that Catskills uh, vaudeville. Yeah. Now, I know he didn't, he was not on the vaudeville circuit. He's not that old, but <laughs> there's this kind of uh, like real precision to it. And it's, uh, he's talking about his wife, want, uh, Helen, wanting yes. uh, a divorce. And uh, Bruno Kirby's character is trying to, uh, you know, be uh, all deep and saying, you know what, marriages don't break up because of infidelity. It's infidelity, it's just a symptom of something else. And then Crystal's timing with, well, that symptom is fucking my wife. It's just <laughs> great. Like, I, yeah. Yes. They, in 1987, Sally, Harry and Sally have found that their relationships that they had been in, Sally and her, her long-term boyfriend that they never got engaged, and Harry with his marriage have both come apart. And they meet again in a bookshop, and uh, they decide – that rather than, than screwing things up with, with sex or entering a relationship, that they're just going to be friends. And, and they decide to pursue a friendship despite Harry's previous belief that men and women can't be friends. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that idea because I think that is a very generational notion. Yes. And yes. Harry and Sally – as well as the filmmakers, are all baby boomers. Harry and Sally would have been born somewhere in the ballpark of 1955 or 56. And I think with each subsequent generation, uh, it's become more accepted and more natural that men and women can be friends, and there's nothing inherently strange or awkward about that. I think if you went all the way and talked to somebody from Gen Z – uh, they would absolutely reject that notion on its face and think it was laughable. But in the case of Harry and Sally – 
this was something that was true. And 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 the film actually leaves it an open question. Yeah, and I think for that generation, I'm not sure what the answer was, quite frankly. I don't think either of my parents really had lifelong close friends no. of the opposite sex, whereas I do. Yeah, exactly. I have uh, you know lifelong friends from when I was a little kid growing up where we always platonic, you know, feels more like brother, sister, uh, you know, uh, in just that way. And it, I didn't really think twice about it. But I, what I would say is that I don't feel that when we were, you know, growing up, that it was necessarily completely gone mm-hmm. um, as a notion. Yeah. And I don't know that every guy in our generation has female, lifelong female friends that they were never romantically involved with. But I think a lot of us do. Yeah. And, and, and I think with each subsequent generation that even more so it's, it's, yes. uh, it's absolutely, but here's the thing, you know, if there's somebody, you know, younger than us and uh, that who's listening to this and thinking, well, that might, there, there are people younger than us. <laughs> Hopefully they're listening to our podcast and be like these yes. two guys, my God. Uh, but like, there, there's so much that is so true and so real that even though that aspect of the movie is very much a baby boomer concept, there are other aspects in that in the movie, and I don't want to get to all of them because there's stuff I think that, that I want to get to in time that is so universal and so timeless that it you know the movie the movies those are the more important aspects of that of the movie and and sure you know, to I the mean, movie's e- credit. even even for us it was uh just one thing you know sitting around talking about being worried that you're not married and having a kid by 30 right that kind of is no longer a, a thing when we're growing up and so there there's plenty of stuff that doesn't culturally track for me even and i'm a lot closer to it than than you know the younger generations but at the same time that stuff really feels like the 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 time and place trappings yeah it's not really the heart of this movie exactly i i absolutely agree and from this point on we get some really great sequences where uh harry and sally's friendship is growing i love Love, love, love the scene in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yeah. Which is was largely improvised. Waiter, there is too much pepper on my paprikash. And yeah. and you can see in that scene where Meg Ryan looks off camera to Rob Ryder to see if she should still keep going with it. And she still keeps going with it. It's so yeah. good. Oh my yeah. God. And of course, it was around this point in the movie that we have the most famous scene in the movie. Cats is deli. Yes. And Sally fakes an orgasm. I think they have an okay time. How do you know? I mean, how do I know I know? Because they... Yes, because they... How do you know that they're really... What are you saying? That they fake orgasm? It's possible. Get out of here. Why? Most women at one time or another have faked it. Well, they haven't faked it with me. How do you know? Oh. Oh. 
Are you okay? Oh. Oh, God. Ooh. Oh, God. Oh. 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 Oh, God. Oh, yeah, right there. what she's having and and it, it's interesting that scene was written late in the process of, of 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 writing the movie and it was because they were that reiner and efron were getting concerned that the movie at that point in the movie was becoming too harry centric and they knew it needed balance and that that balance that the two main characters are on a relatively equal footing is so important to this movie. And it's one of the things that I think we see carry through romantic comedies of the 90s, um, with, with some exceptions, obviously. But that Katz's Deli scene, my God, it's, I mean, there's a reason why it's a classic. Yeah. And it, it, it is rare for a movie to get to a place and, you know, one, one never knows exactly why, but to have a line a single line of dialogue enter the cultural lexicon. Yes. Uh, I'll have what she's having to me. It's on, you know, a level of I'll be back. Yeah. It's on the level of, uh, Here's make my at day, you, whatever you yeah. want. Yeah. 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 All of it. It's, it's, it's iconic and of a time. And, and the scene itself, even when you've seen it a lot is hilarious it's every great. time. And, it lives in those reaction shots. Oh, it does. It absolutely shots. does. I, I want to say there's actually, you know, it's 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 a scene with a kind of double button because uh, everybody knows that the I'll have what she's having line is the is the the cherry on top. But before that, I actually think what is the first sort of kind of comedic button on the scene is when when Sally fakes the orgasm, she does the whole thing and it's very good and very sexy and all that. And then she immediately goes back, instantly returns to normal and start eating again. Like it's, it's so perfect. And then you cut to Rob Reiner's mom saying what she's having. It's perfect. Uh, It's just perfect. Uh, And uh, I, I believe that I saw online that that scene they claimed when they did the movie, the, the tests, the, the the screenings, they said that every woman was laughing and every man was silent uh, <laughs> during the, this scene about whether or not you could fake an orgasm and fool a man. We get a, a great series of scenes around Christmas time, which always reminds me of how much I love New York City at Christmas. It's the best Christmas city, except for maybe like London, but like... New York at Christmas, it's so great. Which which brings up another aspect of this film that is a break from the films of the 70s and 80s in that it depicts New York as somewhere you'd actually want to live. 
<laughs> this is not Snake Plissken's New York. No, no, it's not Snake Plissken's New York. It's not the out of towners. It's like, and, and New York hadn't quite kind of gone through that transformation. It's the way they choose to shoot New York, the way they kind of, you know, the, the way they frame it is, is really, it makes it feel it's like, oh, I, I would want to live there. Yeah. But it also feels like an actual place. It's yes. not an aspirational New York that is crazy, unattainable, and that it's just, you know, it's not all like the hottest nightclubs and all of that. Um, we will get to a movie at the end of this series. And I'm, I'm not yes. even going to say the name, but there's a movie at the end of this series, which is the platonic ideal of the American city. And New York is that platonic ideal. It, you know, if there is a, a, a you know, a, an afterlife, I would want to end up there because it's just <laughs> perfect. Um, and 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 I don't know if New York, even edit the, the best of it, was ever quite as depicted in that movie. It's something we'll get to at the end of this series, um, but I'll give you a clue. The Zipper Man. <laughs> There's a scene at the midpoint of this film that takes place New Year's Eve 1987, uh. where Harry and Sally have an awkward midnight kiss. And this... First of all, this is a beautiful scene. It's a, it's just a beautifully shot. It's everything about it. It's beautifully acted. It's beautifully shot. Uh, and it's the first time that I think the two characters are really aware of a mutual attraction. Yes. And as a consequence, they pull back because they don't want to risk the friendship. I think it gets that scene, gets to a core of what makes this such a watershed film. Because usually... Romantic comedies need to create obstacles in order to keep the protagonists apart until the end of the film. If they get together, you know, at the end of act one, well, that's uh, the movie's over. But most of the time, those obstacles are external. They work for rival companies. They're part of rival families. There's this, there's that. But there's another kind of romantic comedy where the obstacles are internal. And when Harry Met Sally falls into this category, now, by no means is it the first movie in this category. Woody Allen made his career making movies where the fundamental obstacle is the neuroses of the male character. And there's certainly a lot of Woody Allen influence in When Harry Met Sally, most notably from Annie Hall. Uh, you even look at the way Sally dresses. Yeah. There's a couple of there's a couple outfits she wears that feel like, oh, that's straight out of Annie Hall. But with Woody Allen, all of Woody Allen's films are essentially from the point of view of Woody Allen. And that's not a, that's wrong with that. It's that's the way he makes movies. But when Harry met Sally, giving us the point of view of both characters, that's groundbreaking. Yeah, and you know this scene sequence, the New Year's that you're talking about, uh, just to go really, really tiny, mm -hmm. which is that New Year's dance. This is before, right before the kiss. Yeah. And you get that dance with them dancing with each other and they're very close, um, mm -hmm. but it's not anything. And what I, I just love this on both actors faces. They could do it in succession. You see both of them realize mm -hmm. that they love the other person. Absolutely. Now, whether, whether it's conscious as far as like, Oh, I love them. Or if it's, you know, whatever messed up version of that is in their head, it is an, uh, and by the way, I have a top 10 seeing a character realize something on an actor's face's moments. This is number two. Number one is Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring when he realizes at the Council of Elrond. Right. Not only, he's the first one that hears Frodo. 
say, I'll take the ring to Mordor. And you see on his face, he realizes that Frodo's right. Mm-hmm. And then you see the sadness when he knows what it's going to do to him. Frodo's do. Yeah. So anyway, that's number one. But this is number two. <laughs> and and then after that, you get the kiss, which first kiss, Chris, I made the note an hour and 10 minutes into an hour and a half film. Yeah. And that takes uh, not only genius, uh, because it's not like I've been sitting there and I don't think anyone has been sitting there going, ugh, they haven't kissed yet. Yeah. But you are yearning for them to kiss. And when it happens, it is both satisfying and unsatisfying for the reasons you talked about, because the characters are scared. Yeah. And, and, and the audience is ahead of the characters because the audience has already started to realize that these two people are perfect together. We've had these scenes that are of platonic friendship, but you could just tell, you know, like there's a bit again in the Christmas scenes where they, they carry the tree together and it works. And then later when they're, when they're on the outs and Sally, Sally tries to carry it herself and struggles. It's, Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, but Harry and Sally, they, they're not comfortable. They're not ready yet. And they pull back from that and they actually set each other up with Jess and Marie. And what is hysterical is while they don't hit it off with each other's best friends, the two best friends hit it off with each other. Now, this scene, I have to say, first of all, this scene is brilliant, but it has the only false note in this movie. Mm. Because in trying to prompt conversation, between Harry and Marie, Sally mentions that they're both from New Jersey. And they ask where each other are from. He's from South Orange. She's from Haddonfield. And the conversation stops. Now, I ask you, Rob, have you ever met someone from New Jersey who didn't love talking about being from New Jersey? No, I have not, Chris. I would have gotten at least a little more. <laughs> I mean, I'll say it. You know, I should mention that my father's family's ancestral home is the Oranges. So who knows? You know, like it's people from New Jersey love to talk about being from New Jersey. I can't. It's but- <laughs> true. My my father's ancestral home, also the Oranges. Oh, yes. right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I I went every summer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's more than I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that aside, I think it's great how this scene, I mean, it, it becomes so clear that Harry loves, like, uh, that Harry loves Sally in the way, like, he talks about the way she orders, which was previously yes. a point of derision of like, oh, this is this annoyance. But he's like, you know, not only does she pick the best thing on the menu, but she orders it in a way that even the chef didn't know how good it can be. Because in life, People have these idiosyncrasies and they can drive us nuts at first. But then in time, without realizing it, they grow to be the things we love. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the little things about a person that you know. Yeah. Backwards and forwards that can show the closeness. Yeah. And um, and watching them try to sell each other to their friends is it's hysterical. Uh, is, it's fantastic. It really is. It's so good. And and by contrast to Harry and Sally, who take a long time to figure things out, Jess and Marie, boom, instantly that night, we're oh, well, let's get a cab. Oh, yeah, I'll go to with you too. And then boom, they're off. And three months later, they're getting married. 
and and uh, and and we see Harry and Sally shopping at the Sharper Image, an oh so eighties store. Oh. oh my god! And he gets the karaoke machine, and he's singing "Surrey" with a fringe on top when he sees his ex wife and the guy she left him for. And similarly, Sally has a similar experience where she learns not long after that her ex boyfriend, who she claimed never wanted to get married is getting married, which sends her into an emotional spiral, you know, where she says, he just didn't want to marry me. And that leads to Harry and Sally sleeping together at last. And just as predicted, it screws up their friendship. It gets weird instantly. Yeah, because, uh, and this has all been set up before, where Harry winds up not quite sneaking out, but certainly not not staying uh, and saying that he'd uh, contact her. She wants to snuggle in yeah. after sex. And you just see the look of, of terror Abject on his face. Terror. Yeah. Where he, he knows, he knows that he messed up. Yeah. You know, this is one of those things where the performances are so believable. You can get into with some of these things, you know, characters have their foibles and then they act on them and it can create problems, right? Right. But that can sometimes come with like a bad production of Death of a Salesman, right? Where it's <laughs> Billy Loman, I gotta go Simonize the car, right? And you're just, if done incorrectly, you can really just want to like wring some necks and be yeah. like, wake up, you idiot. Again, this is something this movie completely avoids Yeah, where it it is totally believable. It's been set up. You know why these characters are making these mistakes, but you are still rooting for them. And it's it's done in a way that is wholly believable. Yeah, it absolutely is. It, it 100 uh, percent. It is. A, it is a balancing act that is just perfectly executed. And Harry and Sally, you know, they 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 struggle with all this. They uh, as as a predicted, they, they it, it screws up their friendship. They have a blowout fight at Jessica Marie's wedding. And while Harry tries to make amends, Sally believes their friendship is over. And the film culminates on New Year's Eve 1988, one year after Harry and Sally first felt something that was more than friendship. And after an evening walking around the city alone, Harry races to the New Year's Eve party where Sally is, and he declares his love for her. And while she resists, he tells her, I came here tonight. Because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And it's a beautiful, uncynical statement that I happen to believe is true. The movie illustrates it beautifully. That once you have that moment, once you it sort of clicks, it's like, well, now this is the way this is the way I want it to be. And it, it there's a beautiful moment where where. Sally says, I hate you, Harry. And and she really means the opposite. Yes. And it's, uh, God, this movie, you're right. You're right. This movie is perfect. This movie is perfect. And I love it. Uh, I love it with all my heart. And it's it becomes the model for so much of what follows, which is why yeah. it's kicking off this series. And, and with that sequence at the end, when Harry professes his love in a way that he is never, he's just straightforward yeah. and positive about it and romantic about it. And this is, not happened before. And then her response is the, I hate you, Harry, because she, she wanted to hate him. And, yeah. but now she knows that she is going to go with him and that, that, you know, that being that open and vulnerable and that loving can come with, uh, you know, you can get really hurt, which is what has happened. What I love the most about this, this bit is that it, it doesn't just flip 
the character viewpoints because, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we flipped it at the end? Right. To me, it shows that, you know, in some ways they've rubbed off on each other. Mm-hmm. And also they really maybe weren't as different when you get down to the core Yeah, that, you know, Sally might have chosen to focus on the bright side, but it didn't mean that she didn't have negative feelings. Right. And we've seen at right. various points in this movie that she's had negative feelings. Absolutely. And that, you know, Harry might have been a cynic, but he was a cynic who kept trying at love. <laughs> and if you're only a cynic, why would you even do that? Right. Exactly. And that, that it, it just, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, the yin and the yang are more balanced between them than you would think, including with each other. I also want to mention that this ending, that this scene sets the model for numerous other movies and with what I'll call the grand gesture. Yeah. That is, we're going to hear that a lot over the course of this, the grand gesture that comes in the third acts of romantic comedies, but few of them will play as realistic and human as the one in When Harry Met Sally. But almost all of them will have running. Yes. Running's a big thing. <laughs> running, it's like it's like the villain in a comic book movie falling from a great height. Here, it's the hero yes. in the romantic comedy running in the third act. Running toward the love of their life. Yes, absolutely. And look, visual metaphors, visual metaphors are yes, all right. Yeah. Absolutely. We get one final interview scene, but this time it is with Harry and Sally. And we should mention, I I think it's important to mention, in the early drafts of the script, Harry and Sally didn't end up together. They were able to repair their friendship, but that's it. And both Reiner and Efron admit that that's perhaps the more realistic ending. But ultimately, as they did draft after draft, they decide that Harry and Sally needed to get together. And ultimately, I think that's 100% right. Because in my view, this is a movie about two people falling in love while not realizing it. The audience, as the outside observer, gets to see it before the characters do. And in the end, the characters come to that realization. And if they hadn't, the movie doesn't work. No. I know that perhaps it's more realistic that they don't get together. But at the end of the day, it's a movie. And it it needs to have that emotional fulfillment, and it does. Yeah, and you know, for me, I probably would have still loved this movie even if the ending had been sad. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't. It, it wouldn't be something that I necessarily revisited all the time, right? Necessarily, because look, uh, you know, life's got enough bummers. Sure, but also, while it might be more realistic in totality to say they wouldn't repair it and get back together. Um, you know, a lot of people do actually wind up with someone. Yeah. Now you've had a lot of failure to get there. And that's to me where I think this movie, I don't find it wholly unrealistic because you have two characters who made a ton of mistakes and had a lot of romantic failures. And then finally can, uh, even in the course of making mistakes in a relationship, decide to make right on those mistakes because i don't know about you chris but (laughs) i'm i am not the perfect husband i certainly wasn't the perfect boyfriend Uh, i i am (laughs) uh you know i don't know maybe i am the perfect husband but i was definitely not the perfect boyfriend (laughs) not the first time not the second time not the third time and then eventually i got it right because 
to quote Edward Albee in his uh, his play, The Zoo Story, sometimes you have to go a long way out of your way to come back a short distance correctly. Oh, man, that is so true. Uh, but I, I loved learning things the hard way and being a late bloomer in pretty much every aspect of my life. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we should talk a little bit about the success of this film. Not only did it help revive the romantic comedy genre along with our next film today, but it, it set both Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan's careers in high gear. Now, Crystal was already headlining. He had already headlined several films, including the underrated buddy cop comedy Running Scared, a movie I love. Oh, Gregory Hines. Oh, Loved yeah. It. Uh, but this was certainly his biggest hit to 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 date, and you know he would go on to, to headline movies like City Slickers, and and uh, he's and another we'll talk about uh, another uh, Billy Crystal movie later in the series when we do Forget Paris. Meg Ryan would become one of the most iconic leading actresses of the era, particularly in the romantic comedy genre. She set the archetype for the female rom-com star, uh, a model that a number of actresses would follow in, in, in her wake in the coming decade. And, you know, really kind of created the idea of the, the female romantic comedy star as sort of that, that above the title lead, you know, almost like, you know, the, the, the female version of the action starts. Uh, and, and she kind of, she really set that model, and, and amazingly so. Yeah, uh, and in the parlance of our times, as you like to say, I think you could call her a queen of romantic comedy throughout the 90s and, and beyond. Uh, yeah. And uh, what what I find interesting is such a singular you know, screen presence, very different from our next lead. Yes. Who you could say many of the same things about as far as in the 90s go. Yes. As we have previously noted in other series, it often takes two hits to kick off a trend. And like when we did our Get Me Another Boys in the Hood series last year, we observed it was the back-to-back successes of New Jack City and Boys in the Hood, which are two significantly different films that really kicked off the urban crime film cycle of the 90s. Well, the success of When Harry Met Sally was followed by another romantic comedy less than a year later, which was an even bigger box office smash and rocketed another lead actress to A-list stardom. This is Pretty Woman. Welcome to Hollywood. Everybody comes to Hollywood got a dream. What's your dream? When I was a little girl, I would pretend I was a princess trapped in the tower and then this knight on a white horse would come charging up and rescue me. Could you tell me how to get to Beverly Hills? Sure, for five bucks. You can't charge me for directions. I can do anything I want to, baby. I ain't lost. All right, okay. You'll change for 20? For 20, I'll show you a person. Wow. Impressed? You kidding me? I come here all the time. Well, color me happy. There's a sofa in here for two. Close your mouth, dear. What is this girl? Does she work? She's in sales. Touchstone Pictures presents the story of a date. Isn't a date, it's business. That led to a deal. I have a business proposition for you. I'm going to be in town until Sunday. I'd like you to spend the week with me. <laughs> That's becoming a dream come true. <laughs> Time to shop. Get rid of your gum. All right. I don't believe you did that. You're going to be spending an obscene amount of money in here. So we're going to need a lot more help sucking up to us because that's what we really like. Oh. You understand that? Sir, if I may say so, you're in the right store and the right city for that matter. 
they're two people who have no business being together. Everybody is trying to land him. Well, I'm not trying to land him. I'm just using him for sex. Just doing a little business. <laughs> Company I'm buying this week, I'm getting for the bargain price of about one billion. A billion dollars? Your folks must be really proud, huh? Everything was going their way. Well done! Well done! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Until... I don't want you to go. You hurt me. Yes. Don't do it again. Something unexpected happened. What the hell is wrong with you this week? You fell in love with him? Did I not teach you anything? Look, I'm not stupid, okay? I'm... I'm not in love with him. They can find you an apartment and get you a car. I want more. I want the fairy tale. I thank you. You're a very special woman. Touchstone Pictures presents Richard Gere. So what happened after? Climbed up the tower and rescued her. Julia Roberts. She rescues him right back. Pretty woman. Maybe you guys could, like, um, get a house together. Buy some diamonds. <laughs> One of the first things I mentioned when we were talking about When Harry Met Sally, you might recall, was that the film was inspired in large part by Rob Reiner's experiences following his divorce. As it happens, the director of Pretty Woman was the brother of the woman from whom Rob Reiner got divorced. Rob Reiner was married to Penny Marshall from 1971 to 1981, and Pretty Woman was directed by her brother, Gary Marshall. I got really concerned you were going to say that Gary Marshall's <laughs> life story informed Pretty Woman. I was, I was very... I was very worried, Chris. I'm like, I didn't know that he was a corporate raider. <laughs> you know, Gary Marshall began his long showbiz career as a writer for The Tonight Show. That's The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. Oh, yeah. He then, you know, he also wrote for sitcoms such as The Joey Bishop Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Danny Thomas Show, The Lucy Show, before adapting Neil Simon's The Odd Couple for television in the 1970s and subsequently creating such legendary TV series as Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Mork and Mindy. He began his feature film directing career in the 1980s with hits such as The Flamingo Kid, Nothing in Common, Overboard and Beaches. The film that would become Pretty Woman started as a spec script entitled 3000 by writer J.F. Lawton. Now, Lawton's original story, and I think this is fascinating, was inspired by the people he had met living in the seedier part of Hollywood when he was a struggling writer. And it is a dark and gritty story about a prostitute and a wealthy corporate raider. And it dealt with issues such as drug addiction and out of control capitalism. And the script was a subject of a bidding war between Universal and Touchstone Pictures, which was a subsidiary of Walt Disney. And apparently it was Walt Disney Studio president Jeffrey Katzenberg who began shaping the film into something else, into a fairy tale romantic comedy. And he brought in Gary Marshall to direct. Now, I have a confession to make, Rob. Before this week, I had never seen Pretty Woman, a fact my wife was positively shocked by. Chris, I also have a confession. <laughs> Same. Oh! And I've never seen it before this week, and my wife was also shocked. Now, I've seen a lot of the films we're going to be covering. This isn't yes. like, oh, I wasn't, I didn't see romantic comedies because it no, was no, no. girl stuff. Same I, well, I here. Did not, it was not that way. I've seen a lot of these films. But somehow, I think I just never got to this. And then I think I'd, I, it felt like I'd seen all of the scenes in clips yeah. on like 
talk shows and the Oscars and all of that. And I was like, well, I don't need to see it now because I've seen it. But which which was untrue, though, because it is far, far different than those those clip scenes would have led me to believe. Yeah, this movie is fascinating. I I just I didn't see it in the movie theater and somehow never got to it. Like it just but as you say, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't like, oh, I'm avoiding romantic comedies. I've seen a lot of the other movies we're gonna talk about, yeah. but for some reason, I had never seen this. It's kinda to, to me, it's kinda like Home Alone, which I never saw until like maybe a year or two ago on Disney yeah. Plus. You know, and it's like not those movies have anything in common, but I, I'd never seen Pretty Woman, but I think I'd seen the Rodeo Drive shopping sequence like ten times. Oh, it's, sure, it's one of those movies where you didn't escape it, but it, it's and, part and, and, of the cultural landscape. Yeah, for sure. That said, I found this movie very interesting, uh, especially in the fact that it really should not work. There are so many red flags all over this movie, but that it, there's no logical reason that this movie should work, but it does. And it's almost entirely on the charm and chemistry of the cast, particularly the two leads and a genuinely witty script. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you've got it, it's funny. I, I, again, can't read. So I didn't know the history of the, the <laughs> spec script as you were talking about it, but you can totally feel that. You're in Hollywood Boulevard where, um, oh goodness, Vivian lives with her friend yes. and is working where she winds up meeting Edward. Like that stretch of Hollywood Boulevard, it feels like it's straight out of Angel, right? Yeah. The, uh, like the, <laughs> yes, that, the, uh, the B movie. Uh, yes. From the 80s oh, I early. know Angel. There are parts that feel very much like this movie is going to go in a far, far different direction. And then it does go in a far different direction, but just not the one that I thought. Exactly. But it is, uh, there are a lot of disparate elements. And I also think the direction where Marshall's, particularly with the actors, mm-hmm. where there are things that that could start to feel super outlandish, but he keeps everything super grounded in addition to just, you know, the charm of of uh gear and and roberts yeah richard gear and julia roberts absolutely make this film work with 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 a healthy assist from hector elizondo laura san giacomo ralph bellamy in what would be his final screen role and even jason alexander as an absolutely detestable villain and i'll say perhaps the most realistic character in the movie i hate to say it. yeah i i was i was getting uh paul reiser and aliens vibes yeah off totally, of him. Uh, totally. In, in a good way like just uh, this this totally believable guy that you are you you love to hate it is worth noting that just about every major actor and actress in hollywood was considered for the leads at various stages of the film's development so i'm going to run down a little list just so you could kind of imagine an alternate version actors considered for edward include daniel day lewis christopher reeve kevin klein denzel washington albert brooks Al Pacino, Sylvester Stallone, Burt Reynolds, Sam Neill, and Charles Grodin actually tested for the part along with Julia Roberts, but ultimately, obviously, it went to Richard Gere. The number of actresses who actually turned down the role of Vivian include Karen Allen, Molly Ringwald, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Daryl Hannah. Others who auditioned included Winona Ryder, Drew Barrymore, Brooke Shields, 
Uma Thurman and Jennifer Jason Lee, who I can actually see in the role and would have been great because it's not unlike her role in a movie I love called Miami Blues. In any case, at this point in her career, the 21-year-old Julia Roberts' most notable roles had been in the ensemble films Mystic Pizza and Steel Magnolias, the latter of which had not even been released when Pretty Woman was casting. But at the end of the day, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts make this movie work. It doesn't work without them. It, it's true. Um, now, it, talking about with, uh, you know, the trend starting with when Harry met Sally, this movie would have been in the works before. Yes. So that, again, as we talk about, this movie isn't directly influenced by when Harry met Sally, but it's interesting to see some of the zeitgeist where, again, there is a much more... I wouldn't say it's quite as 50-50 in this one as it is in When Harry Met Sally. But it's close. It's very close. And they are both, uh, both Edward and Vivian are are essentially equal in importance and stature. You're supposed to care about them both. They both have, uh, you know, their own character arcs that are different. They're both, you know, kind of uh, fixing a hole, if you will, in their hearts in a, di- a different hole and in a different manner. Uh, so they're both getting movement, which again, as you, you said, was not always the case in uh, some of the older romantic comedies. Although maybe if you went like way, way back into the yeah. talkie, if, you, if you're going His Girl Friday, yeah. it's funny. Or, or it happened one like night. This. Yeah, it absolutely. Or ha- yeah. But like it had it, over time had 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 changed. And, and, and these movies, I think, are actually in some ways, as we'll often see, they, they sort of go back to a classic tradition, the way that the movie that will kick off the series that will follow this one goes <laughs> back to a different kind of film that had kind of fallen out of favor in time. Uh, spoiler alert, our next series after this is Get Me Another Indiana Jones. But it's updating it in a, in a massive way. Yes. Because, uh, and they even play with that. And I, I know you, you might be doing this in line, so I'm, I'm spoiling it, but this, much like uh, New Jack City, there are moments where characters are watching kind of romantic comedies, yes. or and some of them, and where they're calling back to Lucille Ball and I Love Lucy. Yeah. So you're getting a little bit of that. Uh, they're calling back to Audrey Hepburn, which, by the way, kudos to them to have the restraint for that to be charade yes. and not Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes, so absolutely. Great restraint shown. Absolutely. I mean, let's be honest about this film. These aren't necessarily the most realistic lead characters. I mean, we have a story here about the most idealized corporate raider in film history and the most idealized prostitute in film history. I mean, Edward has got to be the nicest, most introspective corporate raider of all time. Like, he's closer to the Geico Gecko than he is to Gordon Gecko. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, and it's so interesting how it is both a product of the '80s in that yes. it's saying, "Oh, our heroes, a, you know, one of our heroes is a corporate raider, right? Right." But it is also kind of entering the spirit of the '90s of the, oh, but he needs to learn to be a better corporate raider, right? It, it's right on the on the cusp. It, it it's and its movie comes out in 1990, just in you know the transitional period from the 80s to the 90s. So you can kind of feel, you know, this movie has an 80s feel, but you feel it has a 90s feel and it's it's right at the junction. It's right at the at the pivot point. And, and there's a couple things uh, about that. I think between the 80s and 90s, it's right at the shoulder pad yes. of late 80s and 
early 90s. Right at the shoulder pad. Absolutely. And, and, and that they're not realistic characters. I don't mean that as a criticism because there's plenty of great characters that aren't necessarily realistic. Characters I love, Sherlock Holmes, James Bond, and Indiana Jones are all wish fulfillment characters. That doesn't make them any less great because most archaeologists are not like Indiana Jones, most detectives aren't like Sherlock Holmes, and most government assassins are not like James Bond. That's why they're 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 characters of fiction, and that's that's great, you know. Um I gotta say, I just I love the line when early introducing Edward. Uh, he's at a party and he he meets an ex girlfriend that he's still on good terms with, and he asks if she saw more of his secretary than she did of him, and she replies with the line, "She was one of my bridesmaids." <laughs> it's perfect. It, it tells you what you need to know. We learn that Edward is one someone who buries himself in his work at the expense of relationships and all the negative qualities that are usually associated with these kinds of Wall Street a-holes, they're assigned to Edward's attorney, Philip Stuckey, played by Jason Alexander. He gets to, to sort of be the sin eater for all of the negative 80s attributes of those guys so Edward doesn't have to have them. Yeah, and uh, early on, the difference is they're both kind of doing it. But one of them is dispassionately doing it, and one of them kind of loves doing it. Yeah. And you probably know which is which. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a scene at the beginning where Edward wants to get away from this party, and he takes off in, Stu- in Stucky's Lotus, but he doesn't know L.A., and he doesn't know how to drive stick. So he soon finds himself on Hollywood Boulevard, where he asks directions from Vivian. And we see that Vivian... While she is a prostitute, she doesn't use drugs. She doesn't have a pimp. Uh, she does what she can to help her friend Kit, who's also a prostitute. And and they give Kit the drug problem rather than Vivian. So in a sense, she fills a similar role to, to Vivian as Stucky does to Edward, although she is infinitely more likable uh, and, and, you know. Not criminal. Yeah. She she is not irredeemable. No. And, and no. Uh, she winds up with her own very, very mini arc as well, uh, yes. just so you know. Much like New York in When Harry Met Sally, L.A. is similarly idealized in this film. Much of that is a consequence of the film taking place in Beverly Hills. But we get a few scenes on the seedier side of Hollywood. But it's the most idealized seedier side of Hollywood that you're going to see in a movie. I mean, oh, I should mention the blink and you'll miss it. Uh, Hank Azaria as a detective in the yeah. only street crime you see in the movie. Yeah, which is, uh, I believe, a murdered prostitute uh, is the implication. Yes. And so we know, and this is the signifier of just how dangerous it is out there and uh, and not much else. Yeah, um, that's it. Because it's it's like that, just like the, the kits, uh, the, the drug dealer guy that she owes money to. In, in other movies, you feel like, oh, this is going to come back and right. Vivian's going to like it's going to cause problems for Vivian and Edward and she's going to have to like save Kit. None of that happens. I, I do wonder if that if those the kind of vestigial tale from the original script. I think so. Yeah. I also want to mention, you get some great shots of L.A. at the end of the 80s and the cusp of the 90s. I actually noticed the Bow Nose billboard on one of the buildings. Yes. I'm like, oh, Bow Nose, that was a thing for a while. Yeah, you can see the 80s roots in both the films this week. You know, when Harry Met Sally and Pretty Women both are, are rooted in the 80s, but bending the curve into the 90s. Yeah, and another thing uh, about the – this is starting to be the last time where every L.A. skyline is this smog-ridden. 
Yeah. Because there have been pollution standards that are getting enacted. And even when we get here, what, you know, you know, eight-ish years later or whatever. Uh, for me, it was more like uh, 15 years later. And, and when I moved here, Hollywood Boulevard was still uh, – it, it, it literally was still streetwalkers. Yeah. But it was not populated. Like it is in this movie. Right. It was really had become kind of a ghost town, that area that you drove through and were just like, Ugh. you you were you're you're going from one place to another. Yeah. Uh there what like all the old cool punk clubs from Valley Girl, they were mostly <laughs> gone. Like the good the cool stuff was was out and it was just kind of decay waiting for a developer to take over, which if there's nothing more LA than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Edward asks Vivian for directions, and after negotiating over the price, she ends up getting in the car to show him the way to Beverly Hills. More than that, she ends up actually driving the car because he can't drive stick and she can't. This is a, a scene early in the movie that tries to put the characters on equal footing. He can't drive a stick, she can. He doesn't know LA, she does. There's an obvious exception that he's a millionaire and she is not. But aside from the financial aspect of it, they they make, in terms of personality, these two characters are sort of balanced, not quite to the same degree as when Harry met Sally, but in a way. Yeah, and she will not um, suffer ill treatment and demands, you know, respect in various ways. And it doesn't, it actually feels very, uh, again, human, uh, the way that she does it. It doesn't feel like uh, a stage thing or a put on. It's not like, God rest, I love Flo from Alice. But it's sure. not like a kiss my grits kind of a thing, right? right? No, it's, it's-, it's much more real and down to earth. Yes, absolutely. Vivian ends up coming to Edward's room and she actually comes up to Edward's room and he pays her to stay the night. And I love that uh, one little late 80s thing, they make a point about how the key card is like a new thing. Yep. And I'm just like, ooh. He's like, oh, I miss having real keys. Over the course of this podcast, there have been a number of movies that, that you and I have described as horny. Oh, yeah. Flash Gordon comes to mind, or Sorceress. There certainly have been more than a few. Pretty Woman, despite the fact that one of the protagonists is a sex worker, is one of the least horny movies we have watched for this show. I, I was just fascinated by the fact that that in particular, Edward doesn't seem turned on by the fact that there's this very attractive woman in a very scantily clad in his in his uh, his his room. He's 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 not uh, not that kind of guy. Yeah. And it is, you know, they still have male gaze shots of Vivian's body. Right. They do. Uh, they they also when they have their their first uh, sex, which we cut away from. Yep. You know, we don't get too far with it. You do have some of the most impeccable sex foley work i have ever witnessed just like the, the fabric yes. on itself and like putting things down that click on the table it is in the zipper it's like and i know it can sound like i'm being you know facetious or whatever but no this is like some of the most amazing sex foley work but to your point and I think that's why this movie touched you know as wide as it did yeah is that there are many Americans who are completely hung up on sex and talking about sex in public and being in a room with strangers with the lights out and sex is happening on a screen. A lot of people that makes them uncomfortable. I know if you're if you're listening in Europe, you're probably like the crazy Puritans and uh, you're right. <laughs> and so I think by keeping it in more of, as you'd said, more of a, a kind of a fantasy realm. Yeah. Where 
you know it's happening. The movie implies that it's happening, but it's not going to make you sit there and watch it because what's important is how all of this is making everyone feel. Yes, that is absolutely right. I want to mention a little interesting bit in that opening, that that, that first night where um, Edward comes into the bathroom and Vivian's there and she hides something behind her back and he thinks it's drugs. So he demands to see what she's holding and it turns out to be dental floss. And she has that line, you shouldn't neglect your gums. One of the aspects of the original darker version of the story was that Edward insists that Vivian stay off of drugs for the week that he's with her, which makes me think that this scene was part of the original version, but it wasn't dental floss she was hiding. But the version that's in the film is so illustrative of her sweet nature. I mean, she is the most wholesome streetwalker in movie history. I, and I I love the – there's another aspect to that particular bit that I love, which is that it's showing – this is so early on in their relationship. She is still putting on an act for him, a complete yeah. act. And the reason she's hiding that dental floss is because it's not sexy. Right, right. Right? That that isn't, that isn't something that someone's paying $300 to spend the night with you wants to see in her, you know, is what she's thinking. Right. And so she is putting out this idealized version of who she thinks this guy, you know, and he, when he asks her name, you know, she gives the, the classic. What do you want it to be? Yeah. What do you want it to be? And that is the attitude in the beginning of their yeah. relationship. And that will change and become very, very different as we go on. The next morning, Edward proposes a deal. And then this is the famous bathtub scene where he he would like Vivian to stay with him for the week. And they negotiate a price, which is $3,000, which that was the original title of the spec script was $3,000. Edward leaves for work and he tells Vivian to go buy some new clothes and he gives her money to do so. But because how she's dressed in one of this whole sequence is amazing. This whole middle part yes. where because of how she's dressed, no one in the Beverly Hills boutiques will wait on her. I think Pretty Woman, while certainly bending the curve towards the 90s, employs one of those most 80s of tropes, the rich, snobby villains. There is a snobs versus slobs theme throughout 80s in particular comedies. And I think Pretty Woman continues that with the upper class a-holes that Vivian encounters. Not that Vivian's a slob, that's just the terminology for sort of the, the regular folk versus the upper class. And you see it throughout the 80s. And I think this is a kind of continuation and a kind of button on it because Vivian and Edward ultimately get together. And that's, you know, that's kind of the crux of the movie is that they each change a bit. The second thing I want to bring up is because this is where we really get an introduction to Hector Elizondo as Barney, the manager of the Regent Beverly Wilshire. And he is fantastic in this movie. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. What I love is he, he doesn't, his character doesn't have a lot of real estate. And so it, everything has to be super efficient, which I think the script does a very good job of of giving him the material. Yes. But also his his performance and his selling of it, you get him, you know, his his revulsion and just wanting this woman to not be in the hotel, finding out that, well, he's got to kind of tolerate her because of who she's with, going into kind of a taking her under his wing, so to speak, in a very like sweet and, yeah. you know almost paternal way and you know you could take that you know however however you want where 
there's some people that might think it's paternalistic, but I think the movie is at least portraying it as sweet. He's never looking down on her once he comes around. Yes, once he comes, he comes around. around. He's never looking down on her, and he, he, you know, he sets her up with someone who could help her find the clothes that she needs. And you, you know, the sequence sort of culminates with the the Beverly Hills shopping sequence. Uh, in which you have Larry Miller in this great little role as the obsequious <laughs> store manager. We're going to be send, you know, spending an obscene amount of money. Uh, so we really need you to kiss our ass. It's like, you're in the right store, and if I might say, the right city. Yeah. <laughs> it's so and and then the, the button on the sequence gives us another all-timer movie line. Hello. Do you remember me? No, I'm sorry. I was in here yesterday. You wouldn't wait on me? Oh, you work on commission, right? Uh, yes. Big mistake. Big. Huge. I have to go shopping now. It's my wife's favorite moment. <laughs> she made me rewind and go back to it so we could watch it again. Yes, and I, I heard that it's uh, very much a fantasy, you know, for to have people who look down on people and exclude them to have the fantasy of now they're kissing your ass. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I get that. It's a little different, I think, for, for me. Enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think the expression of it is different for me because yes. I never want to go shopping. Um, but there, <laughs> there are other realms where, yes, you know, I, a similar impulse would be there. Uh, we do get the the bit. It, we finally get a little horny since this movie when she buys the tie. And she and Edward comes back to the yeah. hotel room and she's just got the tie. Nice tie. We then have the polo match scene where, where the snobbiness of Edward's social circle is on full display. It's here that Stucky tries to find out who Vivian is. And Edward, foolishly, in order to allay Stucky's suspicion that she's a corporate spy, tells him that she's a prostitute. After which Stucky immediately turns into an even bigger a-hole and takes the opportunity to proposition Vivian, which leads to her fight, first fight with Edward. And what I find so interesting about the fight, they go back to the hotel room and she's like, you you humiliated me. Marshall puts her on the step above Edward. She literally has the high ground of that scene, literally and metaphorically. Yeah, and this is, and, and I think she pretty much, unlike in Harry Met, when Harry met Sally, both characters make mistakes, yeah. right? And they have to learn, learn to come together and they both, you know, have things to atone for, if you will. Pretty Woman, that is not the case. It's funny in that, you know, screen time, they're very, they're pretty equal. You know, Edward has his own character arc of he's the heartless corporate raider, but then he even, you know, as Vivian changes him and the relationship changes him where he's yeah. going to, he's going to do that a different way. Yeah. You could say all of this stuff on paper, but I think for me, at least in watching this and you know, the sequence with Edward at the hotel and then with Hector Elizondo's character. This movie to me is clearly Edward's POV, even though so much of it is with Vivian. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because this movie's chief goal, which it apparently succeeded in, is to make the audience also fall in love with Vivian as a character. Yes. I don't necessarily mean that in a, you know, romantic way. And there's so much of this that I think she is almost unimpeachable as a character. I can't think yeah. of anything that she does in this movie that is just um like 
that she needs to apologize for. Right. She makes mistakes, but they're of a innocent variety. Yeah, and they're like and they're, they're social faux pas, and they're not they're not things, yeah. they're not fundamental character flaws. Uh, we, I want to mention the business deal because uh, Pretty Woman has a business deal in its storyline, which, as I observed, was was common in romantic comedies in the eighties. But here, it only serves as a way to measure how much Edward has changed. As a, on account of his time with Vivian. And, and what happens is Edward kind of scuttles the deal, or rather he changes it so to become a partner to Ralph Bellamy's character. Um, and, and honestly, I think it, that bit, that his Edward's change, is a rejection of sort of the 80s winner-take-all view of business. It's like, oh, instead of just buying and selling things, we're going to make ships. We're going to make big ships. And, uh, and, and Stucky blames Vivian for Edward's actions and he arrives at the hotel and he he attempts to, in what is the darkest scene in the movie, yes. he attempts to rape Vivian, but Edward arrives and knocks him on his ass and fires him. Thank goodness, because for a moment, I was like, oh God, that's, uh, you know, it's, that's the darkest bo- moment in, in the whole movie. And I think you could, I don't think this movie says anything, um, it, it, it does at the end, right? But I don't think the the bulk of the text of this movie doesn't isn't necessarily anti-prostitution. No. Enough. They tack it on at the end because it was America in 1990. Yeah. But what I would say is that Edward does treat all people, including Vivian, as a commodity at the beginning of this movie. Yes. And that as he gets to know Vivian and starts treating her less like a commodity – which it takes a very long time, which yeah. is, I think, also somewhat in some ways believable in that way, where he still kind of like looks down on her for her fo- social faux pas and is like slightly embarrassed by them throughout this film. Whereas uh, you'll often find like Ralph Bellamy's character finds it charming, yeah. you know, because yeah. he appreciates someone being real. Yes. But by the end, it, it is his Edward no longer treating Vivian as a commodity, it means that. He no longer is treating all of the people at this company that he's taking over as a commodity as right. well. And so it's, it's yeah, it's a nice mirror. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to also mention, because we're, we're, we're wrapping up, but I, I want to mention there's that iconic scene where she comes out in the red dress. They're going to fly up to San Francisco for the opera because she's going to – he teaches her to appreciate opera. She teaches him to appreciate walking around barefoot. But there's that moment where he comes out. He's in a tuxedo. She's in this red dress, and he's got the necklace in the box. And she reaches for it and he does the little, he does the little like snap, which was a totally improvised moment. And you can see it because when, when the, when they laugh for just a second, it's Richard Gere and Julia Roberts laughing, not Edward and Vivian. It's it. And it's, but it's beautiful. It's, it's a wonderful moment. Um, And it's interesting to have the both films today had just these iconic improvised moments uh, between the two main characters, which shows the chemistry between those actors, because so much of the so much of these movies and these type of movies rests on that chemistry in a way that other movies don't necessarily uh, do. And uh, you know, in some ways, Pretty Woman is quite different from When Harry Met Sally. But what they have in common is they both revolve around genuinely likable characters who you ultimately end up rooting for. That's the fundamental key to romantic comedies is you have to root 
for these characters. And I think it's interesting that in both cases, both movies this week, the original versions of the script ended with the characters not getting together. As I mentioned, the original version of Pretty Woman was a much darker film. And in that version, Vivian falls in love with Edward, but the feeling isn't mutual. And in the end, he drags her out of the car and leaves the $3,000 cash on the curb. Uh, And apparently, even once the script was reconceptualized into something lighter, there was still resistance to them getting together because it was felt it was a cop-out. But writer J.F. Lawton said to Gary Marshall, either he has to break their heart or they have to fall in love because it's about these two people. There's no third way. And I think it's absolutely true. Yeah. And it's – well – this is high concept in that he's a corporate raider and she is a prostitute and they meet and it's going to be a romance between them that the stations in, in that they have in life at the time uh, make it high concept. But beyond that, you talked about Harry met Sally. The obstacles are internal in this film. The obstacles are also internal. Yes. It's not a lot of, Oh, it doesn't get to a point where like, Oh, in order to make his deal, he has to pretend that he's not with Vivian. It doesn't right. do things like that. You get a little bit with the, you know, the Jason Alexander's character, but it's still not keeping them apart. It's actually helping to drive them together more, frankly. Exactly. This is also very internal about the two characters, uh, and which is interesting to see. You know, it's they're both breaking this way together uh, independently. Absolutely. Absolutely. And pretty well, woman, it did incredibly well at the box office. It made $463 million worldwide. It was the second highest grossing movie of 1990 after Ghost. And the film surpassed Three Men and a Baby as the Walt Disney Company's highest grossing movie to that point. And to this day, it remains the highest grossing R-rated movie released by the Walt Disney Company and will likely remain so until Deadpool 3. Wow, I did not know that. It's just amazing to me that this incredibly successful movie from the Walt Disney Company revolves around a prostitute and her client. That is is mind-boggling to me. I oh, love that's it. That's why they invented the touchstone label. Absolutely. I guess. Yeah. There's no question. That is absolutely. And it, it, this was sort of the culmination of the touchstone project, at least in its early years. This also feels like the softest R movie ever. Yeah. Like, oh, I there's don't no know question. This, would this get an R now? It feels I didn't like this count would be the PG-13. number of times people said the f word, so it's I, I'm not sure, you know, like. But but I think you know they they could t- if you toned down and just gave them their their six or their five fucks whatever yeah. they need, um, <laughs> you know I I don't know that the situation would be considered so adult that it couldn't be PG thirteen anymore. I agree. I yeah I, I I think that's absolutely true. What's funny is I don't I don't know if you could make this movie today because I I think. Views of sex workers have changed. Views, you know, just there are are feminist issues that I'm not sure would necessarily play in the same way today. But at the same time, you couldn't have made it that much earlier because, you know, things like the Hayes Code would have stopped, you know, like the the whole concept in in its tracks. So it's like there's there's like a very small window where this movie could exist and it, it came to exist. Uh, And it's kind of amazing in that regard. Yeah, it is very much of its time. And this isn't to say that it's dated. Those are different things. Yes. And watching this, because again, I'm watching this for the first time in, you know, 2023. I really don't have a ton to say on this, but I I have no idea what is or is not feminist in this movie. Yeah, I I don't don't know either. You you could, I, I mean, I could see, I was trying to look at different 
the different sides of things. And I, I think you could much of this film, I think you could make an argument for one or the other. Um, and it's, maybe that's kind of, uh, part of the appeal is that depending upon, you know, your viewpoint, uh, you can kind of make this movie uh, play with, uh, you know, as as you want it to be. I agree. I think that, and that's, and, and it clearly was able to, to achieve that sort of, I mean, few movies achieved that kind of universal appeal as Pretty Woman. And and the two movies today, When Harry Met Sally and Pretty Woman, they are the one-two punch that sort of revive romantic comedies. They're like, they're like Jaws and Star Wars were for, for summer blockbusters. But Harry Met Sally and Pretty Woman, you know, they they opened the floodgates for romantic comedies in the 90s. And, and we are going to be talking about uh, a lot of those films and some really interesting films over the, the, the weeks ahead. Um, so please come back next week because we have uh, we have a very exciting episode. We'll be joined by a very special guest and a friend of the show, filmmaker and Reverend Entertainment founder Justin Beam will be joining us to talk about the 1992 figure skating rom-com The Cutting Edge, as well as Cameron Crowe's Gen X-centric film Singles. We thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorgis. And if you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. And as always, please tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies. Tell that person who just faked an orgasm in a very public place. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.